0: Uh, Good morning. Would you open your Bibles with me together uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, which if you're using the Pew Bible, uh, it's on page 966. Page 966. We're going to uh, do something that seems like a no-no for some reason, uh, which is to straddle uh, a chapter break. Um, I don't know why that feels like something you're not supposed to do, but we're going to do it. We're going to be rebellious this morning. Um, (laughs) I should have said, my my name is Davis uh, Morgan, and um, it is a privilege and a treat always to be invited into the pulpit here um, in our home church. 966, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Let's read God's word together. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Amen. The grass withers, flowers fade. The word of God stands forever. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, this is your word. It's not my word. It's not anybody else's. It's your word. It's without error in any part. It's written for your glory and for our good. It's given to us as a gift because you have called us into relationship with you. Because your word is the only way we can come to know you in a saving way. So God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, particularly in your word. And we thank you for the word incarnate, Jesus Christ. The true revelation of God. The one who has made you known to us. Who gave his blood for our sins, and who rose again in victory that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God, who is coming again and for whom we wait eagerly. Lord, would you transform us as we read your word and study it and digest it this morning, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Friends, I don't know if Harry Potter is your thing. I'm sorry. I'm a millennial. I can't help it. Uh, But in the classic third book of the Harry Potter series, again, hang with me if this isn't your thing, Harry famously learns the magical spell called the Patronus charm. Harry's a wizard, by the way, If if that that needed explaining. The Patronus charm in this universe, this wizarding world, has one function. To ward off the Dementors. Dementors are dark, magical creatures that feed on hope and happiness. That prey on every happy memory. That drain their victims of every shred of joy. Professor Dumbledore... In the story says. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace. Hope and happiness. Out of the air around them. Get too near a dementor. And every good feeling. Every happy memory. Will be sucked out of you. And that's what the Patronus charm. Is there to ward off. But the way it works. Is that it's, it's fueled. By a happy memory. You have to have an incredibly powerful, happy memory. Something that's incredibly strong to focus on in order to produce the Patronus charm. And a big part of that story, you may know, is Harry searching and searching for a memory that is strong enough and powerful enough and happy enough for him to produce this protection against these dark creatures. And he can't do it until finally he thinks of his parents and his friends. And he's finally able to produce this spell to keep the darkness at bay. Look, here's the question for us this morning, friends. Not what happy memory do you look back on to hold the darkness at bay, but what hope do you look forward to? I would suggest to you, friends, that what Paul describes in our passage as the weight of glory is our patronus charm. It is our hope that holds us. It it is the glory that grounds us, that enables us to not be swallowed up by darkness. In other words, to not lose heart. Look at the opening verse, verse 16 of our passage Therefore, we do not lose heart. This is a passage that wants to teach us how not to lose heart. I I can't think of a more appropriate theme for us to reflect on right now. I don't want to speak for anybody else. I may be the only one. I think I'm not. But friends, I find that I'm losing heart a lot. I find that it is very hard right now to not lose heart. To not sink in the quicksand of all the sadness, all the pressure, all the strife, all the estrangement and the darkness pressing in. We just prayed over a litany of things. People with poor health Cancer, dementia, disease, upcoming surgeries, the the general decay of our bodies. And that may be you, or it may be a loved one. Beyond even the physical, the mental and emotional and spiritual health, how many of us are, are pressed down In darkness that no one sees, in in just a chronic consistent fatigue and sadness, or maybe sadness that's covered up by a low grade anger that never goes away, or by a by a consistent feeling of just being shut out from God. Maybe wondering, "I, I don't even know if I believe in this but I feel distant. I feel on the outside of something. Am I the only one? Friends, this is a passage that wants to help us to not lose heart. In the midst of all the things, the broken relationships, the broken bodies, broken culture, broken society, the brokenness inside my own chest. And what this passage is saying, friends, is that this weight of glory is a hope powerful enough to stand against everything that could come your way. I mean, we could even ask, is it possible to not lose heart? Paul seems to say that it is. Is it possible that we could have a hope that could stand up in the face of all of these things? Look, I hope this isn't too on the nose. Friends, We're we're just a couple of weeks away from a horrific submarine tragedy that was all over the news. And I'm not beating anybody up, friends. But we made jokes about it. We made jokes about it while it was unfolding. Do you know why? Because we don't know how to not lose heart. We're using nervous humor the same way we would use alcohol or drugs or anger or pornography. We're using it to numb that feeling of being cast out and losing heart, being swallowed up by the dementors. So is there such a thing as a Patronus charm that not only gives us hope of a better future, but even might give us hope of a transformed present? Paul says that's what this weight of glory is. It's our hope. It's our patronus. It's the thing that keeps us from being swallowed up. It's the thing that buoys us up in the darkness and not only gives us hope for the future, but in the here and now, as you wait, transforms the way you wait. And what this glory actually does, that Jesus has won in his cross and in his resurrection, what it does is it transforms your inhabiting of the present into an act of devotion. Your waiting is a form of devotion as you cling to this hope. Look, I think when we ask the average churchgoer what the Christian's hope is, and Maybe this is a little uh, caricatured. I don't know, but I think the average answer you might get is is going to be something like, well, when we die, we go to heaven. That's not incorrect, but it is incomplete. It's not incorrect, it is incomplete, because heaven in the New Testament is not the end of the story. Now, what what we read in the New Testament is actually that we are to be raised to new life with resurrected and glorified bodies. Physical bodies made like Jesus' glorious body in a new heaven and a new earth that have come together in a cosmic marriage at the wedding supper of the Lamb. In other words, the glory that we are hoping for, that we are waiting for, that we are destined for if we're united to Jesus, involves a glorified soul, but also a glorified body, in a glorified creation, in the presence of a glorified Christ, in a creation where there is no crying, no mourning, no pain, where all things are made new. That's the weight of glory that Paul is alluding to. Friends, that's the drumbeat of the Christian life. That should be the drumbeat of every moment between now and his return for us. And it transforms the way we inhabit the present. And I'm going to just give you three quick ways that it transforms our present reality. First, it transforms our suffering. Second, it transforms the way we relate to our bodies. And third, it transforms our service. Suffering, bodies, service. Sorry, there's no alliteration. I couldn't make it work. Uh, First, this glorious hope, this weight of glory, transforms the way we relate to our suffering. Now, one of the things that jumps out of this passage at us is Paul... Calling our afflictions light and momentary in verse 17. Um, excuse me. No, you didn't, Paul. Right? We don't like that, do we? we? We don't... I mean, if you want to lose a friend real quick, diminish their pain. I mean, you think about what you're going through. I can, I can guarantee you, you can think of at least one friend right now who you do not want to complain to about what is hurting you because they're going to jump all over. Oh, that's Nothing. Right, listen to this story. Oh, oh, you're having a hard time. Oh, I, I'm having a worse time. That's a great way to to ruin a friendship, isn't it? Is that what Paul's doing? Is he just doing sort of a, a pain one-upmanship? You know, it's, it's it's almost like that scene in Jaws. Uh, when, you know, the shark researcher and the old fisherman they're conf- they're comparing their scars from from shark bites, uh, and then there's the the police chief who the only scar he's got. Uh, He's embarrassed. The only scar he has is the little scar where he had his appendix out. Not that getting your appendix out is a small deal. Uh, Is that what Paul's doing? Is he just topping us? Is he saying, oh, your your pain's nothing? No, Paul's not doing that. And we shouldn't do it either. What he is doing, friends, is he's drawing our attention to how this weight of glory transforms our present suffering that it, it, it frees us, actually, to name those afflictions. It, it actually calls us to a sacred honesty. Look, because of Jesus, you don't have to white-knuckle your way through life to be a good Christian. Right, you, you, If the... Psalms and the prophets teach us one thing. It's actually that naming our afflictions before God is a mark of mature faith. And hiding them and pretending like they're not there is not. In other words, you know that song from the Lego movie, Everything is Awesome? You don't have to do that. Right? The the gospel frees us actually to name the hurts. Some of us need to uncover our sufferings before God and before one another. Some of us need to grow in a holy honesty, a holy directness, instead of just spraying hairspray on it and moving on. But this glory doesn't just enable us to be honest about it. It also gives it perspective. It promises us that these afflictions, whether it's body, mind, spirit, relationships, society, they don't get the last word. Unemployment doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Cancer doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Racism and oppression and sexism don't get the last word. Jesus does. Loneliness and friendlessness and isolation don't get the last word. Jesus does. Mistreatment and abuse and shame don't get the last word. Jesus does. So we don't have to live as if these sufferings are the last word. Because we know there's another chapter to the story coming. And holding those two realities in tension, friends, holding those two things together is a mark of mature faith. Faith. to to to, to be able to name my afflictions and to not cover them up and to not say everything is awesome when it's not, but to also not be swallowed up and become spiritual Eeyore. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says to that church in its suffering. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Listen to what he says. He says that you grew in compassion through your suffering. Because, not, not, not just because you were suffering, but because while suffering you're seeing the greater possession, the abiding possession, the heavenly city. Because you're clinging to that, you actually grew in compassion. You grew actually in confidence. You grew in joy. It's one of the most counterintuitive things about the kingdom of God, is that suffering actually becomes a way that we enjoy fellowship with God. You see, the confidence of this weight of glory, this hope that holds us, it transforms the way that we suffer. Now, secondly, it transforms the way that we inhabit our bodies, the way we relate to these bodies. In this opening section of chapter 5, Paul uses this metaphor of a tent. Uh, and he's referring to the physical body, right? The the tent is our body. And just like with our sufferings, there's a movement from the short term to the long term, from the fragile to the solid, from the lesser to the greater, right? J- just like our outer self is wasting away, but the inward self is being renewed. So the, we're moving from a tent to a solid building. If this tent is destroyed, we have a building, Paul says that this body that we call home right now, it's, it's like a tent. It's designed to be lived in for a short period of time. And it's relatively breakable, fragile. Look, to be honest, I hate camping. I, I don't know if you do uh, love camping, think that it's wonderful. I wish I loved camping, but I hate it. Uh, it's it's either hot or it's cold or it's wet or it's, you know, there's bugs everywhere. Um, I, I'm one of those people like, what do you take camping? A hotel room. Um, I love air conditioning. I, I can't help it. But the worst part about camping is that every time I go camping, there's a thunderstorm. Uh, and, and those poor little camping tents, y'all, when a good Mississippi thunderstorm Comes through, those little tents don't stand a chance. I mean, they're held up with paper mache and sticks and string. Paul says that's what our bodies are like. They're prone to destruction. You know what Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians? He says they're perishable. Our, Our bodies are perishable, like fruit. They break down, they decay, they, they, they dilapidate. And what Paul is saying, just like coming home from a camping trip when you're wet and freezing and miserable and you smell like a campfire, our bodies long for a more solid structure. A house, a mansion with a big chair in front of a roaring fire. Look, and and Paul's actually doing more than that. He's taking up the movement of God's presence with his people, Israel. In Israel's story, first, God dwells with his people in a tent, in a tabernacle, which was a glorious tent, but a tent. It was majestic and holy, but it was also temporary and relatively fragile just like that, our bodies have a majesty and a holiness to them, but they're also temporary and breakable. And just like in the age of King Solomon, God's presence moves from the tabernacle, from this tent to the temple, which so far outstrips the glory of the tabernacle and the solidness and the permanence what Paul is saying is, our bodies are going to do that, that they're destined to give way to something more glorious, more majestic, more solid. Don't mistake what Paul's saying. He did not say our bodies are bad. He didn't say they're evil. He didn't say that they're more prone to sin than our minds. That's not what the New Testament teaches. And he did not say that our bodies were something to be escaped. What he says is, they are our earthly dwelling. They're tents. Look at verses three and four. Paul says the goal is actually not to escape the body. It's not to be what he calls found naked or to be unclothed. It's to be further clothed. the The inner self that's being renewed day by day. The house that's being prepared that we're being prepared for is. This heavenly body in which we will be further clothed. Right? The, the goal is not for us to escape bodily existence, but to inhabit a glorious body made like the glorious body of Jesus. Bodies that somehow, like Jesus's, have both continuity and discontinuity with our earthly bodies. Right? Jesus' glorified body in the, in the Gospels, he still eats, he has glorified taste buds. But he also walks through walls. Now, what what are the details going to look like for that? I don't know. Those are secret things. God doesn't tell us that. But the point is we're moving from tabernacle to temple, earthly body to heavenly body. We're moving from the lesser to the greater. And that's not just for our bodies. It's for all of creation. Look, the picture at the end of Scripture is not of us drifting aimlessly on a cloud with a harp. It's not us becoming some sort of wispy ghost in an eternal, uh, uh, you know, drum circle. It's it's us in a city with bodies in a new creation. It's you feasting and dancing in the new heavens and the new earth at the greatest wedding party that's ever been that's what we're waiting on to quote a famous theologian the Christian hope is not life after death it's actually life after life after death that's this weight of glory that transforms the way we inhabit these bodies that's what we're waiting on and it puts our bodies in perspective because on the one hand you see our bodies are sacred gifts from God To be cared for and valued. Not to be despised. Not to be talked down to in the mirror. Not for you to be ashamed of. Not for you to hurt. All of scripture is covered in God's affirmation of his physical creation. Specifically human bodies. Jesus came in a human body that ate and slept. And got tired on the other hand, we don't have to worship these bodies. Which means you don't have to experience every physical pleasure possible in order to be a complete human. That's not your ultimate purpose. We, We don't have to fear the decay of these bodies because the tent is going to give way to the mansion. Perspective. You don't have to be ashamed of this body, but you don't have to idolize it because of this weight of glory. That's what we're waiting for. And actually it's not all waiting, is it? The fascinating thing is that it's not all waiting. Verse five, Paul says that the Holy Spirit himself, who God has given us, if we are united to Jesus by faith, the Holy Spirit is himself the guarantee of this promise of glory. He is the guarantee of the coming new creation. There's at least three places in the New Testament where Paul uses that language of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, literally as earnest. Any of you who've bought a house recently, you know what earnest money is, right? It's it's a part of the full purchase price that I'm going to give you now. Why? So that you know I mean business. Any of you who've gotten married recently, what do you think an engagement ring is? I'm going to give you... Myself, I'm going to give you everything about me. And I'm going to give you this as a promise, as a pledge to tell you, I mean to keep my promise. It means that God can be trusted. It's a concrete pledge, but it means more, friends. It also means that you inhabiting this body in this place at this time are indwelt by the person who will remake all things one day it means that new creation power is presently alive in you that if you are trusting Jesus that you are presently indwelt by the one who will remake all things Which means, verse 9, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's the last horizon of change in this passage. This weight of glory that transforms the way we relate to our bodies and to our suffering also transforms the way we relate to our service. You see, to know that this glorious future, through the indwelling of the Spirit, through your life, is actually breaking into the present that it's it's not only not yet it's also already it means that as you wait for this coming glory you're not just running out the clock God has not called you to the place you're at to run out the clock this glorious future is breaking into the present through God's people the God of the universe who intends to both redeem and inhabit his people and his creation has put you on this planet, in this city, and in this church family to do good so that we might please him. Which means there's no sphere of our lives that this waiting hope does not touch. So where, where are the places where perhaps the Holy Spirit is driving you, leading you, calling you to bring this glorious hope to bear in the here and now. Maybe a friendship, a neighbor, a broken family relationship, maybe a broken system in society that you feel called to be part of the restoration of, maybe an injustice that you feel called by Jesus to put to rights or to be part of putting to rights. This service, this seeking to please God, is part of his mission on earth. And it, it, look, it seems counterintuitive, but this daily dying to self that Jesus calls you to is actually how you partake in the divine joy it seems counterintuitive. There's probably never been a society so bent on personal happiness and freedom and freedom from discomfort as ours. But let's ask how's that working? Right, how's hedonism going for you? Is it is it making us happier? No. And if we ask Jesus, how do we find happiness? You know he says, "Take my yoke." Take my yoke upon you. Jesus, how, how do I get free of discomfort? How do I be joyful? Seek first my kingdom. I think we as, if we as individuals and as a church family, if we were to take seriously Jesus' instruction, we'd find that in aiming to please God, we find our own happiness thrown in. That in pleasing him, we partake in his pleasure. This idea of pleasing God, which Paul drives home in verse 10 with this reminder of a divine evaluation that's coming. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. C.S. Lewis calls this in in his, uh, uh, his address on this passage, the promise of glory that through the work of Christ, we actually shall please God. Through Christ. That the praise which is due to Jesus... With you, I am well pleased. The praise of the master to the faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. This promise is what you are destined for in the gospel. But but my service is so feeble. It's so broken. It's so skewed because of all the junk I bring into it. It's just like the artwork on your refrigerator if you're a parent. Right? That that picture that that child draws. It says, look, I drew a picture of you for you. Look, and it may look like a mutant mailbox with eight legs. But I bet you it's worth more than the Mona Lisa to you. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he has prepared in advance for us don't uh, now look I know in in Presbyterian reform circles we're very cautious about good works we're very cautious about that language I get that but don't make the mistake of thinking that your father is not pleased when you aim to please him with your life don't think that your daily dying to self doesn't go up on the heavenly refrigerator C.S. Lewis said it this way, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son, it seems impossible, a weight of a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. You see, friends, that's what Jesus is calling us to, into partnership with him. Transforming our sufferings to be his sufferings. Transforming the way we inhabit our bodies to mirror the way he inhabits his body. To serve God as he served. To please him. Lewis connects this impulse we feel uh, to, to, to the way we feel when we look at a beautiful landscape or a piece of art or hear a piece of music Say we're, say we're looking at a mountain, and, and as we smile at this mountain, in awe of its beauty, as we confer glory upon this mountain, Lewis suggests that for almost an imperceptible second, we wish that the mountain could somehow smile back at us. Do you know what that's like? staring at something that you find mesmerizing, that for a moment is, is a conduit of the glorious hope of being with God and wishing somehow that it could confer glory back on you. Wishing that the mountain could smile back. you ever felt that? That's what we're destined for, actually. Is it standing before the judgment seat of Christ, glorifying him, He might actually look at us and through the merits of Jesus say, Well done. I am so pleased with you. Uh, I went to see James Taylor perform in Jackson a few weeks ago, and James Taylor's not like on my bucket list or anything. um, But the three or four James Taylor songs that I know, I love. Amazing voice, amazing guitar. Anyways. uh, I hope this is okay to say. My wife and I went, and there weren't a lot of millennials there. Um, but the ones of us who were there had a really good time. Um, but what they don't say is what a charming person he is on the stage. The the stories he tells, the jokes he cracks. And he's, really, I became a huge James Taylor fan that night. Uh, but in, in the midst of it, I, I realize seeing James Taylor live for some people is like, This is a bucket list thing for some people. And there were some people going crazy overseeing him. And at one point, as he's telling a long, funny story, someone in the crowd just breaks out, I love you, James Taylor! Like, this is cheesy. But he he stopped everything. And I, I swear, I think he blushed. Maybe even choked up, but he said, I love you too. See, that's what the weight of glory is, friends. It's a cheesy analogy. it's, It's what the Westminster divines have taught us. What's the chief end of man? What's the purpose of life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And what we actually find is that in glorifying him, in seeking his face, he returns the gift. To glorify him is to enjoy and be enjoyed by him. That's the weight of glory that transforms not only our future, transforms our present. Let's pray together, friends. Father God, as we conclude our worship in the next moments and as we go out into the world, I pray that through what we've read and studied that you would draw us more than ever close to yourself, and that you would send us out in the world aiming to please you. Would you do that for Christ's sake? Amen.